Amen. Well, I'm happy to be back. This is great. It's always a blessing to preach at men's Bible study, but there have been a lot of events in history that were world-changing, that were life-changing, right? You think about the world wars. uh, You think about uh, COVID, right? I mean, that was massive. That changed the world. And there's been a lot of products and services and companies that have changed the world and how we live our lives. Amazon, right? I mean, Amazon's about to take over the world, I'm sure, in the next 10 years, right? The car, electricity, all of these products that have really changed the way that we live our lives. And there's one thing that I didn't mention that is sitting in your pockets right now that has changed the world, and that's your smartphone, right? More than just the cell phone, the smartphone in particular, especially over the last 10 years, the technological advancements of the smartphone has changed the way that we do everything. It's changed our lives. Do you guys remember maps? Like physical maps, right? Yeah, I mean, and then that next level up was MapQuest, Right, nobody prints. Okay, if you're printing MapQuest, then you need to get a smartphone, I guess, because MapQuest, I, th- I don't even know if that exists anymore. But maps, physical maps, some guy on Tuesday night, he, he yelled out a brand name of a map that he knew. And I, you know brand names of maps still in your head? No. Hey, see, there you go. Right? Right? Oh, man. You know, I, you, you're not going to get lost anymore with your phone, unless you're using Google Maps, then you're probably going to get lost, but it's much less likely to get lost now that we have this app on our smartphone. Think about music, right? A lot of us had these uh, this CD or cassette cases that were sitting on the passenger seat of our car, burned CDs, summer jams, nine, 1999 or whatever, Right? It's like, we all did that. I know some of us uh, had the cassette tapes, okay? So I'm dating myself, so those CDs were, were in my high school years. But I, I, had, the, I had the book, I had the, the CD. I don't use that anymore, right? No, we got, yeah, try, right? Uh, records, <laughs> if you can go even further back. Um, but no, I, I mean, we don't use that anymore. We have Amazon Music, we have Spotify, we have Pandora, you name it. It's all sitting there on our smartphones. It's changed the way that we listen to music. Our smartphone has also changed the way that we communicate with one another, right? Social media, that's something that is revolutionary. The way that we talk to each other, the way that we research, the way that we um, look things up. I mean, do you guys, I don't know, maybe this, was, this is a little bit later in your time, but I remember opening the, the old phone, not the smartphone, the old cell phone, and if I clicked that internet app, I started to sweat because I realized, oh, my parents are going to get the biggest bill of their life, Right? So that's not an issue anymore. We just click Safari, we Google something, and we're there. The smartphone has changed everything. But there's something that far exceeds the changing effect of the smartphone. Right? There's something that uh, it far exceeds the changing effect of COVID or world wars or Amazon or the internet or electricity. And that event that's changed the world is the death of Christ. The death of Christ has affected every single human being that's ever existed, exists now, and ever will exist, right? I mean, think about the influence that Christ's death on the cross has had on our society. It's changed art and literature. It's changed the way that we tell dates, right? A.D. and B.C. It's changed the way we've tracked things on the calendar. It's it's changed the way that we've uh, uh, built buildings even, right? Architecture has been influenced by this. Every single thing in the world has been changed by the death of Christ. It's the most influential moment in history. But most importantly, it's influenced millions, if not billions, of people's individual lives. Jesus' excruciating death, it completely paid our sin debt, and that should drive us to new levels of devotion to Christ. And here's the thing, if you are taking that death for granted... If it's become old news to you guys, then you may be uh, in, in, in danger of making light of your sin, right? You may be in danger of making excuses for the sin if we're taking that death for granted. And we don't want to do that. So let's look at our passage today. Let's see this, this story afresh 
renew it in our minds and see the death of Christ in action found in John 19. Let's look at John 19. We're going to look at verses 28 through 37 this morning. John 19, 28 through 37. Let's, let's look at this story afresh. Let's get our eyes on the text and see this amazing story, this world-changing event here in action in these words here. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So I read the full text there, which is not typical of me. Usually I like to go through it, but it's a big chunk of text and there's a lot there. So let's look back at the first three verses. That's the focus that I want to have for this first point. The first three verses that we see, 28 through 30. And let me give a little bit of commentary on verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, right? We have the God-man who knows all things that are to come to pass. It's ready, it's being finished as we see later in verse 30. Said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Okay, what scripture are we talking about? What's, what's this, this prophecy that's being fulfilled in this moment? That's the, I want you guys to have that filter as we're reading this text. There's many prophecies being fulfilled throughout this, this event. Okay, and the first prophecy we see fulfilled is found in Psalm 60, 69, rather, verse 21. Psalm 69, 21 where he says, I thirst, and I'll just read the text quickly for you. It says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Just a little sidebar. We can have a lot of Old Testament typological, um, right? They they serve as types of prophecy, right? It doesn't have to be an exact, like, this is a literal fulfillment that we're going to look at here. We'll look at some of those later in this text, but I just want you to keep that in mind as well when you're thinking about this first one. And then it goes on in the text. It says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, this is not the the wine mixed with gall that we see in Mark 15. Jesus was offered that and he refused it because he didn't want the pain to be numbed, right? In fact, this uh, wine that's on this sponge, it actually is meant to uh, increase or to, to give him energy, to keep him alive longer. Right? And Jesus received this, and it, I mean, that's an amazing thing. He wanted the full weight of the excruciating pain on the cross. He wanted to feel the full uh, power of, of God's wrath. And he needed it, it looked like, to basically, as we see in the other Gospels, he, he yelled out these last final words, right? As he yells out these final words, words and yields up his spirit. So he took this wine so that he would have that energy to do that, Right? And then if you notice, hyssop branch, that's what the sour wine was on. The sponge was on a hyssop branch. What does that make you think of? When you think of the hyssop branch, well, that's reminiscent to Exodus 12, right? Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, right? That's the Passover, right? They dipped the the hyssop branch in blood and smeared it on the doorposts that they would pass over those faithful uh, families, right? So we're seeing a a personification, an image of the real ultimate Passover lamb right here. This is an amazing thing. Verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And that's three of the most powerful words you're going to find in the Bible, 
We'll talk about what that means, but it is finishes this perfect tense where you know, past, present, future, always, everything has been completed and fulfilled in Christ. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Gave up is something we want to point out as well because he is the only one who has authority over his life. He's the one who gives up his life. Nobody takes it away from him. Nobody has authority over the God-man's life. No, he gives it up when he's right and ready to do that. And that's what he did. He gave up his spirit. So if the death that changed the world is going to truly change the way that we live, it's going to change us, then we must first appreciate Christ's finished work on the cross. That's point number one. Appreciate Christ's finished work on the cross. Has been satisfied. It's finished. The penalty for sin, the penalty for the sins that you and I have committed has been paid for. The demands of the Old Testament law has been fulfilled. All of the demands fulfilled in Christ. Atonement for every single sin that you and I will ever commit has been made. Atonement by the high priest that is Christ has been made for us. And salvation of all of his people has been accomplished. On this moment, it is finished, the death of Christ, all of the people that would be saved accomplished in this. And lastly, of course, there's much more to this, but what I had written down, Satan has been defeated, right? We don't have the, we have this enemy constantly, but he doesn't have power in the same sense after Jesus died on the cross for sin. It's been completed, it is finished, it is paid for on the cross. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean in your lives? Why should this change your life? Well, it changes everything. Christ's death should change everything. Not theologically, but practically in your everyday life. Galatians 2.20 is a beautiful passage. I love this passage. And it reminds us of who, whose life our life belongs to. Who does it belong to? It belongs to Christ. So we look at Galatians 2, verse 20. Paul just got done talking about, uh, or well, arguing rather, justification by faith alone. And he goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, in this world, in my life, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, that, is, that ought to change the way that we live our lives in every single way. That changes our perspective, that changes our thoughts, that changes our words, that changes our actions. And I know this is basic and this fundamental, but our relationship with Christ is, is foundational upon our spiritual disciplines, right? And if, if you're neglecting spiritual disciplines in your daily life, that's what we gotta get back to. I mean, that's a huge application that we can take from appreciating Christ's finished work on the cross starts with, okay, how am I doing in spiritual disciplines? And I mean, prayer. Are you reliant upon prayer to the God who created you, to the Christ who died for you? I mean, Bible reading. You think, I know this, this seems elementary, but sometimes we have to get back to the fundamentals, don't we? Sometimes we forget, and just as we take for granted the death of Christ, we may start taking for granted the foundational principles of the faith, and that's being connected with God through prayer, through Bible reading, daily intake of God's word. I mean, when you think about and reflect on the death of Christ, how could you go a day without coming to Christ in his word and in prayer? And in line with that is Bible memory, of course. Putting at the forefronts of your mind, meditating on it, listening to it, and, and applying it even without it being in front of you. You have it in your brain, right? You're reliant upon God's word. When you appreciate Christ's death on the cross, when you appreciate the sacrifice that our Savior made for us, you're reliant and dependent on him in every way of your life. It changes the way you behave. It changes the way that we think and that we talk and that we act. We have to have this type of biblical perspective, right? The world is constantly pushing their narrative on us in our lives. And if we don't appreciate Christ's death on the cross, and if that doesn't change the way that we live our lives, then that influence is going to influence us. 
Instead, we have to have a constant renewal of our mind, and that comes from going to God's word, and have this biblical perspective in our lives. Change is how you use your time. Because remember, if you belong to Christ and your life is in Christ, you've been crucified, the old ways have been crucified, the new ways, you have a new life in Christ, well, now all of your resources are spent serving him. The time that you have is spent, that resource, that valuable resource that every single one of us sometimes will waste is meant for Christ. It's meant to live for him. How are you using your time? Another amazing result of the death of Christ is that we can be rest assured that our salvation is secure in him. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, that our works contribute nothing to our salvation. It's finished on the cross. It is finished. That means that you don't have to do something to earn your salvation. You have to call upon the name of the Lord, repent and believe. Our salvation is secure. I was living in Virginia, it was like 10, 12 years ago or something like that, and um, I was loading furniture on this truck. I didn't have a truck, so I had to, to I, go, I went and rented one. I got a friend and we went to get this couch, because I needed a couch for my apartment when I was living out there for work. And it was a Craigslist ad, so we, we get in the truck, we drive, it, it's, it was probably 15 miles to get this couch, it was like $50 couch, and uh, we load the couch up in the bed, and there was a second piece that she wanted us to take just because just she didn't want it. So I was like, all right, let's load it up. So I put it on top of the couch. Now, we're all men here. What should have I have done? I should have secured it down. Well, I was young and naive, and my buddy, we were stupid. We didn't do that. Okay, so we just put the, we were like, hey, this is, this thing's not going to move. It, and it wasn't. I was trying to move the couch in the truck bed. It, it, it didn't move, right? So I was good, I thought. Well, I, we get in the car, we start driving, and in Virginia, there's this bridge that goes over uh, the ocean. So if you're familiar with like Norfolk or uh, Hampton, that type of area over there, they have this bridge that goes over the water and then back under the water. Well, what happens when you go over the ocean? There's wind, well, as you can see, the couch flew off the truck bed, right? It was not strapped down. Me and my buddy, well, it wasn't a good situation, right? I just hear this thud in the back of, uh, you know, I look in the rearview mirror and I see the couch on the side of the road. That's a problem, right? Because I didn't secure down the, the, the couch. Now, I know this isn't a perfect illustration, but the idea of, the, the couch being secure, that's the Lord, is, is he's secured our salvation. It's, our salvation cannot fly off of the truck bed, right? It's secure in Christ. I, I, I can't contribute to that. Now, it's not like my buddy was in the back of the truck trying to hold the couch down with his arms, right? And he was shaking because he couldn't hold the couch down and it'd fly off anyways. No, my point is, is that you can't keep your salvation, right? It's secured in Christ. It's been finished. But that means that we got to do something, right? That means that there's some type of sanctification process that needs to come as a result of this. Because as First John says, we could prove our faith is not genuine if we don't change the way that we live our lives. Turn with me to John 10, verse 27 and 28. Let's look at John 10, Verse 27 and 28, just a few pages back in your Bibles if you were at John 19. Verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right? So God has chosen us, if we're in Christ, and not only that, but they do something with that. They follow him. They're obedient to him. They're, uh, the sheep are, are, are following the great shepherd. And that, that, he's talking about us. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I love that. It's, it's present tense. So when at conversion, you're given eternal life. You're, you, you have eternal life if you're in Christ right now. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's this, this sense of a, a theological term, eternal security. If you're in Christ, genuinely, you cannot lose that. And that ought to be uh, to build this uh, appreciation for the death of Christ on the cross. Because our salvation has been secured in that death. 
We're saved by his grace through faith and in Christ alone. We can take comfort in that. And that comfort ought to lead us to a further sanctification, trying to work on our salvation, right? Not to work to get saved, but to further work out our salvation that we have earned through Christ, or well, Christ earned on our behalf, rather. We can't relax in our sanctification. On the contrary, we have to hate our sin. We have to be indignant towards our sin. So do you hate the sin that killed Christ? I mean, think about that. Your sin that you've committed in your lives is what put Christ on the cross. I mean, if you were perfect, Jesus would not have needed to die. But we're not. We need Christ. We need his atoning sacrifice. And praise God that he did die on the cross for us. Turn with me to Colossians 3. Let's look at Colossians 3, verse 5 through 10. Looking at old life and new life. And Paul was just talking about putting on the new self and getting rid of the old self because we've, as Galatians 2 also says, that we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ in our new life. And verse 5 goes on to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So the sin that killed Christ, we ought to be killing. We ought to be killing that sin in our lives. It goes on to say, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On, the, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked, once walked, right? These are listing sins that we did prior to the faith. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So what we see here is a constant renewal and repentance from the old wicked ways of our lives and put on this new righteous ways of of a life in Christ. When we appreciate Christ's death, it looks like killing our old ways and, and growing in our new ways, growing in righteousness. What are the sins, men, that you're holding on to in this life? What are you clinging to instead of clinging to the Savior? Perhaps it's lust. Perhaps it's this secret sin that, you, that no one knows about, lust behind closed doors in your mind, right? Instead, put on love. Because realize when we lust after women, we actually are hating someone who is made in the image of God. Love that person. Put on self-control instead of lust. Get accountability. Get Get rid of devices. Make radical changes in your lives so that you can put to death this sin that's within you. Perhaps it's uh, pride for some of you. Perhaps pride is something that, that you're struggling with in your life. Well, put off pride and put on humility. Be humble in every way of your life. And that comes from, I mean, a constant reading of scripture, you'll quickly be humbled. Your money, job, status becomes far more important than the Savior. Far more important than your spiritual growth. That cannot be so of us as Christians. Maybe for some it's it's anger. You have a tendency to have fits of anger. Well, instead, put on self-control. Be a peacemaker within your, your circles, with your family, with your kids, with your coworkers. Let's put to death what is earthly in us, and that is anger. And let's put on being a peacemaker. Perhaps it's anxiety or depression. Anxiety or depression comes from a lack of trust and faith in the Lord. Depression in itself is not sinful. Anxiety can be. But that comes from a lack of faith in the sovereign God, not trusting the Lord. Prayer. Right? You think about Philippians 4, 6, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray to the Lord. 
for, to battle against that anxiety, put off anxiety, put on trust and faith in the Lord. We got to hate our sin. And it ought to bleed into every aspect of our life. So not, these, not only these personal sins that we struggle with, not only these individual things, and this is just a, a small list in the grand scheme of the sins of man, but we have to hate all sin. We have to have indignation towards all sin. Write down Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verse 10. It says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So if we love God, we got to hate evil, the Bible says. Like I said, this is indignation towards all sin. And it may not be something that we're directly involved in, but maybe you become calloused of the sins of the world and you're condoning things that you know that you shouldn't condone, right? I mean, th- this comes into our lives through media. You think about movies and TV and music that maybe you allow in your lives. Maybe you're not partaking in it, but you're okay with it, or maybe you're okay with your kids doing it, or you're okay with a friend doing it, and you're not calling those things out because you're condoning, oh, it's not that big of a deal, or I'm not doing it. It's not, it's not me, so you're good with it. No, no, men, we have to hate all sin. We have to be pursuing righteousness in all areas of our life. Hate the sin and love righteousness because we have to remember that these sinful things, even if it's not us doing it, I mean, these are sins that put Christ on the cross. Right? These, these sins are, are, are what killed Christ. And if we appreciate Christ's death, then we're hate, we have hatred towards all sin. Let's look back at our text in John 19. In John 19, verse 31 We're just going to look at this single verse for this next point. It says, since it was the day of preparation, okay, that's the Passover, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, and this was, uh, so that was the Sabbath, and this was a special Sabbath, the Passover, on this Saturday. And it's interesting because they say, okay, why, you know, why, the question you ask is why could not the, uh, the bodies hang on the cross. What was going on? Well, it's reminiscent of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23. And the Old Testament law, it didn't allow the, it was a, it was a defilement if they left the, uh, the bodies on the cross. So the Jews, were they were, they were trying to be very careful of obeying the uh, Old Testament law here, right? And it goes on. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away, right? The Jews were so focused on obeying the Old Testament law. Well, it's, it's ironic, is it not? That the Jews are so focused on obeying Old Testament law, not realizing that they killed the lawgiver. He's gone, he's, it's done. They completely miss the point. They completely miss the fact that he's the Messiah. Similarly, we can get caught up in just going through the motions and doing what we're supposed to do because we're told to do it. So point number two Obey out of love for Christ. We all have to obey, but we have to obey out of love for Christ. John Piper has this great illustration that I think is funny. It's short, but it's pithy. It's like uh, he's talking about duty and love. And he goes on to say, um, you know, I'm sure you men have bought flowers for somebody in your life. Maybe even somebody in your life right now, you've bought flowers. Maybe recently you bought flowers for somebody in your life or some type of uh, a treat for, for your wife, right? Well, it's like me buying flowers for my wife and knocking on the door. I don't know why I'd knock on my own door, but I'm going to the door and, and I say, wife, I have flowers for you. This is my duty as a husband. You're welcome. Okay, no, she's going to look at me like, are you crazy? Throw those things right in the trash. Like, I don't want those. No, instead, you, you go, you don't knock on the door because it's your house. You walk into the, the house and you say, wife, I love you so much. I was just thinking about you and I just wanted to buy these flowers for you and just show my appreciation for you. Right? You can see this, this total difference, right? Of course, I don't mean to illustrate our relationship with God as our relationship with wife, uh, our wife in the same sense, right? But it, it's, it's this idea of we love God. So we do the things 
for God, that we're, we're, we obey God out of love for him and not simply out of duty. Now, of course, we all as Christians have the duty to obey God. We all have that duty. However, this appreciation for Christ's death leads us to an obedience out of love, not simply an obedience out of duty and because that's the way we learned in our lives and we go to church, so I'm going to do these things because of that. No, we do it because we love the Lord. Sometimes you may be tempted to love Jesus purely out of duty. You do those works that he calls you to, not because you love Christ, but because you actually appreciate the sacrifice. So perhaps you obey strictly out of duty, but, but not genuine love for Christ. Do you love Christ? I mean, that's the, that's the logical question to ask. Are you loving the Lord on a daily basis? And maybe, maybe this, you know, this hits home with, with some of you guys. Well, you can love Christ. Just rethink about these things. Remember the verse, uh, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. In fact, let's turn to that. Let's look at Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40. Let's look at this passage together. I mean, this is, a, this is a familiar passage. You guys have read it a million times, but it's a passage that we often forget. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. It says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Stop there for me. Does that sound like Christian duty to you? Does that sound like checking off the box to you, to going through the motions to you? No way. We love the Lord with our heart, soul, and mind. That's every aspect of our lives, internally and externally. He goes on to say, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So, of course, love God and love other people. That's how we can love Christ out of love and not out of duty. Obey Christ, rather, out of love and not out of duty. It's not a duty, but genuine. I mean, this makes me think of uh, spiritual laziness, right? I mean, spiritual laziness is something that is, is often uh, accepted and not repented of. Spiritual laziness is, is something that seems to be prevalent in our church. Not our church, but just the church at large. Spiritual laziness is something that we cannot condone. Hold each other accountable in this, men. Like, how are you doing in this area of your life? How are you dealing with this sin in your life? How are you doing with your spiritual disciplines as we just talked about? We're not going through the motions in this Christian life. We're not checking off the box in this Christian life. Right? You approach every day with, okay, I did my Christian duty. Okay, I'm good now. I can go live in the world. No, that's not how, that's not how we live our life. Every aspect of our life is, is meant to be lived for Jesus Christ. Why? Because we talked about it. It's not our life to live. It's Christ's life now. We're vessels of his righteousness. Like the Jews who knew the law and how to obey it, but completely miss the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, maybe some of you guys are missing the point of increased head knowledge. What do I mean by that? Right? The Jews knew the Old Testament law. They knew the facts about what they believed, but they didn't do anything with it. They, had no, they just blindly followed and obeyed. Well, oftentimes we can be pouring into ourselves. In day, I mean, you even think about spiritual disciplines. Okay, I'm gonna grow in my spiritual disciplines, but then if we're not doing anything with the things that we're pouring into ourselves, we're missing the point entirely. Just as the Jews missed the, the point entirely of the Messiah dying on the cross. They clearly missed who he was. Write down James 1, verse 22. James 1, verse 22. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we not only know God's word, we have to do something with God's word, right? When we're investing into ourselves through studying the scripture, and that grows our theology, right? That's good orthodoxy. That, that's what that is. When you, when you have good theology, accurate and correct theology, that's called orthodoxy. Well, here's the thing. Oftentimes, we neglect orthopraxy, the practice of the faith. Oftentimes, we're missing the point of why that we're pouring into ourselves, why we're learning all of these things about Christ. There's a lot of dangers in this. 
And the first danger is that we could be feeding ourselves, but not pouring out into other people. Perhaps you're feeding yourself on a daily basis, but there's nobody around that you are pouring out into. You're coming and you're taking, right? Maybe you're coming to men's Bible study or coming to Sunday. None of you guys, but people come to, 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 to their ministry. They go to Sunday service and they, they intake, 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 but they're never giving. They're never giving out and pouring into other people. Well, we're missing the point entirely. Perhaps you're serving yourself, but not serving others. So this is a little bit more specific and practical. Perhaps you're being served, but there's no ministry posts that you're serving at, right? We all have a duty here as Christians here in our lives. And that, again, should be motivated by a love of Christ. I want to serve the church because I know God's given me a gift and I want to serve the church in every way that I can, right? That should be the mentality that we have every single day, every single week. Perhaps you're embracing the gospel and you love the gospel, and you love that Christ died, maybe you, you really do truly appreciate the death of Christ, but here's the thing, nobody else has heard about it from, the mouth of, from your mouth. Maybe we're not, we're not sharing the gospel, right? We're embracing the gospel, but we're not telling other people about it. Right? That, that's a danger in pouring into ourselves, in head, increased head knowledge, but not doing anything with it. On the contrary, growing in our knowledge of God really should lead to a better devotion to him, should lead to better obedience to him. Let's look back at our passage to find our last point here for the morning. John 19, we're going to look at the rest of the section, 32 through 37, and we see a couple more Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled here in the, in the last section of this text. So it goes to say, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Okay, well, this makes you start to think about Old Testament passages like Exodus 12, 46 or Numbers 9, 12. And I'll just read Numbers for you. It says, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones according to all the statue for the Passover, they shall keep it. They're talking about, again, the Passover lamb. They're not breaking the bones of this lamb that's gonna be slaughtered on Passover. So Jesus fulfilled this typological prophecy of this Passover lamb in this, this passage. Goes on to say, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, blood and water, you know, commentators, are, they, they speculate what that means. I, I think it just means that it proves that he was dead, right? Because there was a lot of skeptics at the time. Remember, John is trying to prove the deity and the humanity of Christ in his gospel. So he's including that to show, look, Christ actually died. He actually was dead. I think that's what that's saying there. But it's interesting because the soldier, he didn't have to pierce Jesus' side. As we saw in the text before, it, he, he knew he was already dead. But for some reason, this soldier was like, I'm going to stab him. Well, it's interesting because that fulfills another prophecy when Jesus is pierced. It's reminiscent of Zechariah 12.10. And I'll just go down it, where he says, um, when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, they shall mourn for him. Right? And we don't see that, that passage, but we see people mourning over the death of Christ. That's another uh, prophecy fulfilled. Turn with me to Isaiah. Let's look at Isaiah 53. Let's see this amazing prophecy fulfilled. Isaiah 53, we're going to look at verses 4 and 6. Isaiah 53 is this great messianic prophecy, and it's, and it's crazy because it's so accurately specific. It's, it's, and Jesus fulfilled it to the, to the very detail. And remember, Isaiah was written hundreds of years before Christ came. Things that he didn't have control over were fulfilled. And let's read it, and you'll see what I'm talking about. In verse 4, he says, Surely he has borne our grieves, griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, right? We see, see that in our text. He was crushed for our iniquities. We see that through the death of Christ. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, right? God's wrath has been appeased. It's been paid for in Christ's death. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That ought to make us appreciate the death of Christ. Why? Because it has implications that our sin has been paid for. But that's not my point. My point is, look, Jesus fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies that Isaiah and Zechariah and Moses all laid out for us. I mean, these, these are just a, a, a few of the many that Jesus fulfilled. And I love in, later in the text where, because I haven't even finished reading, I got too excited, guys. But later in the text, he goes on to say in verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. That's the point of John's gospel is he's trying to get people to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God. And you see what John's doing. He's, he's looking back at these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled and he has confidence in the scriptures because of that. He's like, look at these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. This is the guy, right? He has confidence in, in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. We looked at that. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. We looked at that as well. So we see these Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. But the biggest point that I want to pull from this is that John had confidence in the Old Testament. That was their scripture at the time, right? They didn't have the New Testament yet. But John had confidence in, this, in this, his scriptures that he had at the time. He saw the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled, and he realized that was a huge deal, right? So just like John having confidence in the Old Testament scriptures, we can have confidence in the word of Christ. That's point number three. Have confidence in the word of Christ, accountability than the weatherman's job. Now, I know it's not just one in particular person. It's a bunch of people, but like no other job can you get your, the primary purpose of your job, you, no other job can you get wrong every single day and still keep your job. I mean, if I got wrong every single day, I'd probably be fired. But no, the weatherman holds his job. I mean, I, I have to get a, a, a I leave the, you know, in October, I leave the house with a jacket, a t-shirt, right? I got like a little flannel on and, and a tank top because by the end of the day, I have no idea what's going to happen. I have a gripe with the weatherman. As you can see, I'm passionate. My wife makes fun of me for it. I have no confidence in the weather, the weatherman or the weather app. But praise God that that is not the case with our Bibles. Praise God that that is not the case with the Lord we serve. We can have confidence in everything that he has said. And not just because he said it, but also because he's proved it to us, which he didn't need to do through the fulfillment of prophecies. We can be convinced of the truth of scripture. I want to give you some stats that help you be convinced with the truth of scripture. I want to show you guys, we're going to go to class a little bit here. Do you need proof that the scriptures are something that you can believe? Well, I know that this is, this is the most powerful point, but it's less, you know, evidential. God, God says so, right? I mean, that should be done for us as Christians. I understand that there's more that, that can help, but God says so. John 17, 17. To sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is breathed out by God. So the first thing that we can hold to is God says that we can trust the Bible. That's it, right? No, God is gracious and he gives us more that we can cling to. Fulfilled prophecy. Just as John had confidence in the Old Testament scriptures through fulfilled prophecy, we can have the same. There was 300, at least, Old Testament prophecies fulfilled just in Christ. 300, written thousands of years to hundreds of years before Jesus, completely fulfilled in Christ, documented in this book that we can look to and see, okay, Jesus fulfilled them. Still not convinced? Maybe you're not convinced still. Okay, think about the manuscript evidence. Now, a manuscript is like a, a, a shred of evidence of the Bible. Right? We found a, a full Isaiah scroll. The archaeologists found this full Isaiah scroll from, dated from, I think it was 300 BC, and they matched it up to what we have today, and it was nearly identical. 
The manuscript evidence is daunting. We have 66,000 plus biblical manuscripts. So without a point of reference, that doesn't really mean anything. The next closest, well, actually, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll jump down. The next closest, 1,900 manuscripts. 66,000, 1,900. That's Homer's Iliad, right? Maybe, maybe some of you guys have questioned the history of Caesar. No, right? You believe Julius Caesar lived, right? We only have 260 manuscripts about documenting his life. We have 66,000 documenting the, the books of, of the Bible. If you were to stack the manuscripts, I know this is, this is kind of silly, but it's a good illustration. If you were to stack them, uh, what the, the academic books of, of history have, the manuscript evidence, is about four feet, four feet tall. If you were to stack the manuscript evidence of Scripture, 2.5 miles. I mean, I'm not tall enough to reach that high, but you can see how that's a drastic difference. Right? If you were to stack those pages on top of each other, maybe you're still not convinced. We got archaeological evidence. I mean, every time someone sneezes in Israel, the Bible proves true more. I mean, you turn over a rock and it's like the next best thing in an archaeological find out there in Israel. And they, they haven't even scratched the surface out there. And the Bible proves that true. I, I just read an article, I guess not just read, but about a week ago, and it said, archaeologists discover burial cave filled with intact pottery dating to Ramses II. That's Exodus from Egypt. I mean, they just found that. I mean, all of these scholars are trying to discount and discredit the Exodus, like there's no way that could happen. And then we just stumble upon it in some cave near Israel that we haven't uh, excavated yet. I mean, we can have confidence in our Bibles. I mean, the first point is, is enough alone, that God says so. But it's a gracious gift of God that he hasn't left us there, and he's like, I know you guys are skeptical creatures, and you need something else, so here's, here's much more. So what does this mean for us? Well, this means that we should have a confidence in God's word, of course. And if we have confidence that this book is true, and in this book it says, study me, then we should study it all the more on a daily basis. If this is true, if this is where we come to know who God is, then we should come to God's word every single day with this thirst and this hunger to want to intake it and to apply it into our lives. Apologetics books, CBI classes, these are things that we can grow our knowledge of these things that we're talking about, grow our knowledge and confidence of scripture so that we can go out into the world. And when we go out into the world, you can be confident in defending your faith. You can be confident that these, these discussions and these arguments that you have with you know, your cousin on, in Christmas and Thanksgiving, you can be confident that what you have is the truth and what they have is foolishness. But it's not to win the argument, right? It's because we want to convince them also of the truth of Scripture so that they will receive the gospel, that they would repent and believe in Christ. Because this testimony is true, so that you would believe, as John says. Write down 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We can have this amazing confidence in the scriptures because we have a spiritual weapon and the enemy and the people that are skeptical have a physical, worldly, less significant, less powerful weapon. So you can have confidence to have these, you know, these spiritual conversations with unsaved coworkers. Right? You can go into your workplace and have confidence that what you believe is the truth. And you can have confidence that if you were to tell them about these things, that you can have confidence that you are not leading them astray, but in fact, you're leading them to the only way of truth. And naturally, that leads us to have confidence to go tell people about the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ. Right? That increases our desire and our confidence in evangelism. Sharing the gospel with people. You think again about that coworker that's unsaved that you know. Think about a friend or a family member that you know that's not a Christian. 
And you can come to them not with a, uh, a second-guessing yourself or, or a questioning whether or not this is true, but in fact a full-fledged confidence that what you're telling them is the, is the fact of the world. It's the truth of creation. And it's the only truth. And it's not just a way. It's not just an option. It is the truth. You can have confidence in that because you have confidence in, your, in the word. That device in your pocket has changed a lot of things in this world. But let it be a reminder every time you pick it up of the thing that actually changed everything, the death that changed everything, the blood that Jesus spilt, the death on the cross, the penalty that was paid, the eternal price that you and I couldn't pay. Your life belongs to him. Let this world-changing event be a humbling reminder of three things that leads you to a deeper love of Christ, that leads you to a stronger devotion to live in every aspect of your life, to live for him, and to have an increased confidence in God's word. Let's pray for that right now. God, we are so grateful to you for your word. We're grateful that we can have confidence in it, and that confidence can lead us to having a deeper devotion and a deeper commitment to reaching other people, I do ask, Lord, that we recognize that our lives are meant for you. And I know, God, that some of these truths are some things that the men have, been, have learned since they were young. But God, oftentimes we take these things for granted. But let that not be so of us. Help us to take these things that we've learned, take it afresh, take the death of Christ and remember and appreciate it more than we ever have in the past. And let that appreciation and that, uh, let that motivate us to have a deeper devotion for your son. So God, please bless these small groups. Help them to be fruitful, edifying, applicational, God. Help us not to go um, to take this and to be simply a hearer, but to go be a doer of what we're learning this morning. So thank you, God. Thank you for your word. We're grateful to you for it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.